We are going to be transitioning and continuing uh, a message in, in a series that we started a couple of weeks ago called Spread. And I'm going to have you guys, if you have your Bibles with you, turn to Acts chapter 10. And if you don't have your Bible with you, that's okay. We're going to have the scripture up on the screen this morning, and we're excited that you're here. And so we've been in this series called Spread, and the, the series has kind of had this subtitle of how to live when you no longer have home court advantage, right? Because home court advantage is something that you want in terms of sports terms or home field advantage, right? Where other people are cheering you on. But many times in our life, in our careers, in our workplaces, in our schools, in our education, in our relationships, sometimes even with our faith, right? It doesn't always feel like you got people just cheering you on, right? It doesn't feel like you got a crowd behind you. I feel like there was a commercial back in the day where like somebody was like living their everyday life and there was like people cheering along with them, right? But it's that idea. It's like sometimes life and as we move through our lives and in our, in our independence, it sometimes feel, feels like we're alone, right? And I just really believe we're, we're in Acts chapter 10. And we're at a point in the biblical narrative that we're looking at this morning where I just believe that we have so many different things that we can learn. Because this was a time when Jesus resurrected, there was this little group of people, a cult during that time called the Way, that followed this guy named Jesus who claimed to be the Son of God, who resurrected, and, and, and basically they lived during this time when, when the ideas of Jesus were not dominant. The, the ideas of resurrection, the ideas of Jesus being this Messiah we're not the dominant culture, but what it did is it invited this culture of Jesus to begin to multiply. The early church didn't have home court advantage. So I just really believe we have so much we can learn from these early days of the church. So the title of this morning's message specifically is this, a new meeting place, a new meeting place. You know, this week, I'm a part of a, a cohort of different leaders around the country where we just meet up in different locations and we talk about discipleship. And so I've been doing all these different webinars and learning a lot. And I was on a webinar this week with other different pastors and leaders, and we were just talking about different ideas, talking about the future. And the, and the topic was so interesting this time because it was talking about what truly defines a church. It's a great question to ask. It's a great question to go back to. And a couple of the questions that were, were proposed were such questions as these. Could the church still function without 501c3 status? If that, if that got ripped out away... Some of us, we, we think in terms of like, okay, like tax exemption status as a, you know what I mean, as a nonprofit, like that's a huge benefit, right? That's, that's something so massive. That went away, it would be over, right? So we just started, you know, thinking about these questions. What if it got ripped away? Could the church, as a church, still function? Because sometimes we get those things confused in terms of the business aspect of church. Are we required to have buildings in order for the church of Jesus to function? It's a great question to ask because let's, let's think about this for a second. The early church, they didn't have buildings that they could meet in. They didn't have places that we were so blessed with, just like this building that we have, 25,000 square feet. Are you kidding me? We got this massive space, right? We got 501c3 status as a nonprofit, as a blessing, right, because of our nation and kind of our tax status, right? But it's interesting because the early church didn't have any of that, and what did they see? Explosive growth. The early church was exploding, you guys. What was it? What made this the church? And sometimes we've equated it to different things. Well, it's the 501c3. We have to have that. If that gets ripped away, it's doomsday. And as we alluded to earlier, we become people of fear. We become slaves to fear. When we start thinking about the future, we start thinking about a culture that's headed in a trajectory that might be away from some of these benefits, some of these blessings. Are we done for? Is the church going to become irrelevant? So we're going back. We're looking at the core of a time when that stuff born isn't even a question. 
What was the essence of a church as Jesus' church began to spread as they didn't have home court advantage? And God's mission for his church, it's amazing to think about it. Being sent out as God's people, finding those who are disconnected in such a complex world during this time that was influenced by a lot of Roman dominance. Romans in the Roman culture influenced much of the Near East during this time. So even culturally for people, this was, this was a time where the world was complex in terms of inviting people to the values of what Jesus was inviting them into, right? And it was uncomfortable. And as we read, and as we've been reading in this series, it continues to progressively be more and more uncomfortable for those in the church, having to take faith risks, having to work muscles in their faith that they've never had to before. But I love God's game plan and his mission. Spread. As the church, Jesus, one man, and then he creates this vehicle called the church to spread the values of God's kingdom to every nook and cranny of society. So this morning, we're going to look at an interesting part of the biblical narrative where divine intervention creates reconciliation. Two completely different parties, two completely different value systems, two characters in the biblical narrative, and what God does is he unifies those things together. And this is what I truly believe. It takes divine intervention for reconciliation to actually happen. Many of us are fighting for unity. Fight, 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 fight. And in the midst of our fighting, what are we doing? We're probably creating a bigger and bigger chasm because of our differences, but I love it. God has to be the answer in terms of our glue, in terms of what's going to bring reconciliation. God has to be a part of that very equation. There's a representative of God's people in this story, and there's a representative of everyone else, those who weren't a part of the nation of Israel that weren't identified as Hebrews, as God's people. So we have one character who's represented on the inside and one who's on the outside, right? And we're going to learn from the values of this story. So before we begin, we have two characters, as I, as I alluded to, an early church leader named Peter. A lot of people are familiar with Peter. He's the guy who denies Jesus three times, right? He's one of the kind of leading chief disciples of, of Jesus. And we understand up to this point in the biblical narrative that God has just divinely intervened and shown a vision to Peter and basically encouraged him to move forward in the things of Jesus of saying, you're going to break down all of your prejudices against other people, against those who have been on the outside. Those prejudices are no more. And then we have this other character, this Italian soldier, right? So this Roman-influenced or influencer who's a part of the Italian military, right? His name's Cornelius, and he just also has this powerful vision from Peter. So we're going to open our Bibles to Acts chapter 10, or Acts chapter 10, 10, I just mixed 7 and 10 because I was looking at 7 and 10 in my notes, that was awesome. Chapter 10, um, so we're going to turn to Acts chapter 10, starting with verse 17. Before we do that, let's pray together. Lord, thank you so much for, dude, uh, just a powerful time of worship, a powerful time for us to come together and and glean from you. And Lord, I just pray that, Lord, you just deposit seeds in our hearts this morning. Seeds that we would understand there's a new meeting place that you've called us to be. Lord, you've invited us to spread in, in the same way that the early church used specific methods. Lord, we, we know that the mission has stayed the same. So Lord, help us kind of tease out the mission this morning, your mission, the one that you've called your church to be. We receive benefits in our modern world, such as tax exemption status, such as buildings and locations, but Lord, would we keep our mission pure and focused in the way that you've called us to be human beings that relate to a very complex world. We give you the praise you deserve in Jesus' name. And everybody said, 
Amen. Okay, so we're going to be picking up in Acts chapter 10, starting with verse 17. And it starts off with this. It says, while Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision, so right, he has this massive vision from God, breaking down prejudices, the men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate. So Cornelius, he's an influential guy. He's got people underneath him. He sends for this guy. He receives this vision. Hey, you got to go find this guy named Peter. Rather than him personally going, because of his status, he sends some, some people. Hey, you, got, you guys, on behalf of me, you want to go find and track this guy down, right? So they find out where his house is. In verse 18, they called out, asking if Simon, who was known as Peter, was staying there. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the Spirit of God said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you. So get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. It's very interesting because these three men carried the status that would have been familiar for a Jewish man, one of God's people, referring to the others known as Gentiles. But the Spirit of God, I love how the Spirit of God equates the title of these three men. It's not, hey, these three Gentiles are going to be coming up. These three stereotypical, this label, but the Spirit of God refers to them of who they are on a human level. Three different men. You know, it's interesting. Some of you guys might be fam or, uh, familiar with the famous author C.S. Lewis, right? Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, right? This, this entire uh, Narnia series, right? There's a story, as it goes, as a little boy, um, to his dad, C.S. Lewis. He said, Daddy, I have a prejudice against the French. And his dad says, why? Not unreasonably. And, and C.S. Lewis says, if I knew that, it wouldn't be a prejudice. See, prejudices are interesting because it's a, it's a prejudgment. The word literally means that we make a prejudgment about something before we actually know the concrete facts and details. And we live in a society that's complex because now we live in a society where the word post-truth is common. That facts become whatever my emotions feel, whatever I want to get riled up on a bandwagon with. And we're so tempted to be people that carry prejudices because we use the little amount of facts that we have to back up our claims, to back up our fight, and then we ignore the rest of the other facts, right? We live in a culture that loves to do this, to create division, to create divide, and this is what has given us throughout history bad historians, right? Clever politicians, lazy theologians. This can be very hurtful to a society. And during this time, there were so many prejudices against those who were outside Israel, known as the Gentiles. People would come up with all oh, the wicked things that Gentiles do. Stories upon stories upon stories about collecting data on how horrible Gentiles were. True and sometimes not true. But they would collect the data, grab all the bad things, and use that to create a bigger divide between them as God's great people and those who were on the outside. We continue in Acts 10, verses 21 through 22. It says, Peter went down and said to the men, I'm the one you're looking for. Why have you come? The men replied, we have come from Cornelius the centurion. He is a righteous and God-fearing man who is respected by all the Jewish people. A holy angel told him to ask you to come to his house so that he could hear what you have to say. So we have this character, Cornelius, right? The centurion. And he's a man of influence. And it's interesting because if we back up in the Gospels, when Jesus was living, he encountered a centurion. So we have a little bit of a context of understanding, hey, here's a guy who's on the outside, 
hey, here's a guy, and how did Jesus interact with this guy? So I just want to take a break in the narrative of Acts and go back to Matthew chapter 8 and look at a quick story that I think is going to help, help us understand the larger scope of what's happening and what God's trying to accomplish. So Matthew chapter 8, starting with verse 5, it says, When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help, right? Lord, he said, my servant lies at home paralyzed, suffering terribly. Jesus said to him, shall I come and heal him? The centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed, for I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. Sounds familiar to this character we're engaging with. I tell this one go and he goes, and that one come and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed and said to those following him, truly I tell you, I've not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. He's like, this guy's got massive faith. And then here's the kicker. He says, I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. He's given like the Jewish all-star lineage family line. He's talking to a guy who's on the outside, and he's like, look at this guy's faith. Faith is getting him into the history of what stage is being set up of what I want to burst forth through what I'm about to do. Verse 12, but the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside and into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said to the centurion, go, let it be done just as you believed it would. And his servant was healed at the moment. Isn't that interesting? Jesus speaks something prophetic about somebody who's on the outside. He speaks forth something into the future of saying people are going to come from the east and the west. There's going to be people such as this man who are going to be kingdom world changers. That my gospel, my truth is going to get on these people, and these people are going to begin to influence another people unlike anyone will be able to do. The stage is being set for this character who is on the outside to be a game changer and a world changer for the things of God. Cornelius was a man with influence and purpose, and God was calling him to be a part of a mission that he had no idea he actually belonged in. But he was being called to be the very vehicle that God was about to use. Let's pick back up in Acts chapter 10. Verse 23 says, Then Peter invited the men into the house to be his guests. The next day Peter started out with them, and some of the believers from Joppa went along. The following day he arrived in Caesarea. He's finally, these two are finally going to come together. Peter, this Jewish man, Cornelius, this guy, a Gentile who's on the outside. Verse 25, As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him, and fell at his feet in reverence. But Peter made him get up. Stand up, he said. I'm only a man myself. So it's interesting. We got Cornelius. God's, God's giving him a vision. God's like shaking this guy's life. We know earlier in the narrative that he's, he fears God. But he has, he's obviously got some misconceptions about who God is. His heart. His character. To the point where this ambassador for this God that he recognizes, he prays to, comes into the room and he doesn't know anything other than to bow. If you're the ambassador for this God that I've seen do powerful things that I pray to, I must have to bow at you. But it also plays this idea that Cornelius had a misconception about who God was and what God was doing through his son Jesus, through this posture of love and grace for a world that he loves so much. So Peter tells him, no, no, this ain't about me. Get up. You don't worship me. You don't have reverence for me. Partners these two together and begins to correct some of the misconceptions much in the way that many of Peter's misconceptions are being corrected as well in terms of his own prejudices. We continue in Acts chapter 10, 
verses 27 through 29. While talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. He said to them, You are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. So he's kind of pitching the idea of, hey, what the, just trying to be obedient to God. This is why the prejudices exist, right? He says, but God, but God, in a new place, in a new time, in his progressive, revelatory manner and character, but God was doing something new. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. May I ask why you sent for me? It's interesting because Peter says, I didn't have any objection. But if you were here last week, you know he said no. But he also proclaimed no before God made the proclamation that Gentiles or the people that were on the outside were no longer unclean. We know Peter's posture and his response to that was he decided to get on board with what God had spoken. And it's interesting to think about these first two-thirds of the Bible, the Old Testament, and then we have in our Bible this last one-third. And as a, just a common kind of, you know, average Joe picking up your Bible, you, you, you can get so easily confused about what's happening here and what's happening there. And what God was doing in this last one-third called the New Testament or the New Covenant, Jesus was introducing something new. But along the way, God had to do the proper and important job of keeping his family together people of Israel, those first two-thirds of the Bible, keeping them separate to do through Israel what God had always planned in his heart for all of humanity. See, the law of God in the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, the first two-thirds of the Bible, right? They are the laws of God. It's God's Word. But what's, what we have to once again receive is this was for a particular period and for a particular purpose. And in the New Covenant, Jesus was making an adjustment into something new that set the stage for his heart to burst forth in which he had planned as the God of the universe all along. You know, I think about it in terms of as parents, how sometimes uh, we, we are cautionary with our children. I was out in the front yard. Uh, we have a swing on one of our trees, and I was swinging our, our little four-year-old Luca, and and all of a sudden I heard screaming or yelling, right? And I looked down the street, and there was a younger child that had run into the street, right? And, and his grandma was like, no, like, get out of there. Like, she was screaming. I'm like, whoa, there's like a ruckus going on. But, right, it was like this, like, really kind of disciplinary moment of, like, you don't run out into the street. And as, as, as parents, we're like, obviously that's, like, common sense. Like, we're cautionary, right? And I think in terms of, like, God's posture and God's heart as he was setting the stage for his children, in terms of, of this, this same metaphor for what was happening in the narrative. We have God across the street as the father with his, his child, right? And the, the child just begins to go, and God's like, no, stop, stop! Because there are cars that are coming, right? And eventually the cars pass, and it's like, okay, you can, you can cross the street now. We would never say that's contradictory in terms of the father's heart about being safe, about caring for his children, no. But for a particular time, it was unsafe. And if the people would have crossed, it would have been unsafe. And the person and the, and the story and the narrative and the purpose would have no longer existed because it would have gotten absolutely wiped out. See, God was saying, pause for a moment 
And now the stage was being set for Jesus, for the child to cross the street, to be introduced to his heavenly father, in which his heart's desire was for all along. We as parents want to be reunited with our children in safety in circumstances that seem unsafe. In the same way in human history, God placed pause for his ideas, his purpose, and his heart to burst forth. But now was the moment when the children were able to cross the street into the loving arms of a heavenly father. God did through Israel what he had always planned. And it was happening in the midst of human history. And then this section of Acts finishes off. Acts chapter 10, verses 30 to 33. It says, Cornelius answered, Three days ago I was in my house praying at this hour, at three in the afternoon. Suddenly a man in shining clothes stood before me and said, Cornelius, God has heard your prayer and remembered your gifts to the poor. Send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He is a guest in the home of Simon the Tanner who lives by the sea. So Cornelius describes, I sent for you immediately, and it was good for you to come. And we have this last line. Now we are all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. It's interesting. People from the outside, people from the inside, gathering together under the power and the instruction of God's word. Sounds to me like they're having a little bit of what we would call church. Right? But of course they were. But it's because they weren't having church, but Peter was literally being the church. He was welcoming in those who had been on the outside. He was partnering with God's heart for his mission to everyone else. He was teaching and instructing under the authority of God's word. We don't see an emphasis on the location. We don't see an emphasis on, hey, do you have those tax forms I can sign before I actually start telling you about good things of God and the power of his kingdom and, and let you in on the misconceptions that you have about this God of the universe who sees you, who cares for you, has big plans for your life? No! This organic thing began to happen because there was a hunger to know more about this God who chose to have relationship with human beings. And it, it reminds me of a context that kind of was set up a few chapters earlier. There's a character named Stephen who was the first Christian martyr, the first person who said, I'm a follower of Jesus, that was killed because of his faith. And right before he was killed... He must have just said something so offensive to the people that caused them to get so riled up to the point that they threw stone by stone until this man died. An excruciating way to die, be stoned to death. But these are the words that came from Peter as he quoted the law, the old covenant, God's heart showing up for his longer-term journey of what he was moving humanity and history towards. And it's in Acts chapter 7, verses 48 through 50. This is what... Stephen said to rile up people. He said, However, the Most High does not live in houses made by human hands. As the prophet says, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? 
or where, where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? God's saying, I'm not constrained to a palace. I'm not constrained to a location. It's interesting because, as we know and we read through the Old Testament, even with that proclamation of God, what did the peoples do? They still built him a place, and it became known as his temple. But what was changing here and what Peter was describing is what the stage that Jesus was setting for the rest of human history. There's not a location at play here. Jesus is literally spreading his church out. The temple is no longer going to be the central meeting place for those insiders. The temple was not going to be the meeting place for this thing called the church of Jesus. You know, the temple was the centerpiece of the Jewish community, a place where they literally would sacrifice as worship animals and make offerings to God. It became this central place as God, once again, engaged with where humans were at the time. But now, Jesus was trying to set the record straight once and for all. The meeting place isn't the temple, but the meeting place is Jesus himself. Jesus himself is the bridge between those who found themselves in the family lineage of Israel, but also those who did not find themselves within that religious context and community of the Jewish people. See, this meeting place, it wasn't a place where sacrifices had to be made, but this meeting place was simply just based on the fact of what Jesus had done already, what he was introducing people into. By placing your faith simply in Jesus, in return, he would cover you with his universal, effective blood to cover us from our past mistakes, from our brokenness, and promises to engage with us in relationship on a healing journey. He was the meeting place. And he was meeting his people, not just Israel, but humanity, his people, in grace and in mercy. So before we get out of here, I want to make an application of what we could take away from this morning. And here's our application point. The title of the message was A New Meeting Place. But here's what I believe we can grasp from this really amazing section of Scripture as we kind of pause in this narrative. The meeting place is truly wherever you are. The meeting place is wherever you are. The title of this message is Spread, right? The series, Spread. No home court advantage. Well, it's amazing to think of the strategy of what Jesus had in mind. He said, you know what? We're not going to constrain the temple to four walls. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to fill my presence with this new temple called our human bodies. And when you place your faith in Jesus, you know what happens? One of the byproducts of saying, placing your faith in Jesus, his spirit comes to take residence within your body. Your body becomes this moving, walking, missional temple to bring God's power and glory every single place that you go. And we read in the New Testament based on the ideas of Jesus, that very thing, that our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, but not temples that are just grounded in one geographical location, but one that's called and commissioned to every nook and cranny of society. Jesus' followers, we, as the church of Jesus, are called to be everyday missionaries. 
There's a new meeting place that takes place 2,000 years ago as Jesus sets the stage for his church. And it's for us to be a spread people in the midst of feeling like maybe we're outnumbered. The culture is too much. We live in too complicated of a time. God simply reminds us, you are enough, and I've empowered you to have just what people need. Can we pray this morning?